gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. Hello, welcome back to My Two Cents Podcast, episode 45, which is entitled, I Don't Know. I am your host, G2, better known as Gerald Garrett, in person. And um, I just want to give condolences, first and foremost, before I give to the National Food Days of the Week. I want to give condolences to the Colin Powell family, because um, Monday, uh, Colin Powell was I pronounced dead. He was 84 when... Uh, the news hit that he had passed away from uh, complications of COVID-19. His family did uh, confirm that on Facebook this week. Uh, Colin Powell, well, General Colin Powell, was a former United States Secretary Secretary of State and Chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, Powell had multiple melanoma and a cancer of plasma cells that surpassed the body's immune response as well as Parkinson's. Um, I don't, I didn't know much about Colin Powell. So I had to do research and I went to CNN.com and they gave you a plethora of what Colin Powell did do. And as it's stated right here, Powell was a distinguished and trailblazing professional soldier whose career took him from combat duty in Vietnam to becoming the first national security, first black national security advisor during the end of Ronald Reagan's presidency and the youngest and first African-American chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff under President George George H.W. Bush. His national popularity soared in the aftermath of the U.S.-led coalition victory during the Gulf War, and for a time in the mid-90s, he was considered a leading contender to become the first black president of the United States, but his reputation would forever be stained when, as George W. Bush, first Secretary of State, he pushed faulty intelligence before the United States, well, the United Na- uh, Nations to advocate for the Iraq war, which he will later call a blot on his record. Bush said in a statement Monday that Powell was a great public servant who was such a favorite of the president's that he earned the Presidential Medal of Freedom twice. He was highly respected at home and abroad. And most important, Colin was a family man and a friend. Though Powell never mounted a White House bid, he was sworn in as Bush's Secretary of State in 2001. He became the highest-ranking black public official to date in the country, standing forth in the presidential line of secession. I think it shows the world that what is possible in this country, Powell said of his history-making nomination, his Senate confirmation hearing. It shows to the world that follow our model and over a period of time from our beginning, if you believe in the values that Expouse, you can see things as miraculous as me sitting before you to receive your approval. Later in his public life, Powell would grow disillusioned with the Republican Party's rightward lurch and would use his political capital to help elect Democrats to the White House, most notably Barack Obama, the first black president whom Powell endorsed in the final weeks of the 2008 campaign. The announcement was seen as a significant boost for Obama's candidacy due to Powell's widespread, widespread popular appeal and stature as one of the most prominent and successful black Americans in public life.
Powell is survived by his wife, Aloma Vivian Johnson Powell, who he married in 1962, as well as three children. I just want to pay respect to Colin Powell. I Again, I never knew really much about Colin Powell. I never, again, I always want to state this. I don't pay attention to politics. I don't, because politics is nothing but backdoor uh, politicking, backdoor shaking of hands. It's never, ever really about the people, the working class, or even, like, the poor people. It's never about us. Our My personal opinion, our opinions really don't matter to them, but... For a black man to hold any type of office in America, that is still a win for me in my head, and I believe for every black person in America, because when you look at America and you look at its history and then you see a black person in office, it's such a big deal. It doesn't matter what party he represents. It's a big deal for us because, again, America's history with us, we're not the greatest looked at. We're not respected. We're not deemed worthy. But then when we are up there, it's such a great win for us, and it's just remarkable. Again, I do want to pay respect to the Colin Powell family, and I want to say recipes to Colin Powell, and um, it's just remarkable. He was 84. I even think that, you know what, this even brings me to a question that I want to pose later before this uh, episode ends, because I'm going to remember this question, and I want you guys to really ponder this, but... That's whenever I get to that, but again, recipes to Colin Powell's family and recipes to anybody that has any uh, relations to Colin Powell, and uh, Godspeed. Now, on to National Food Days of the Week. Today being October 24th, it is Bologna Day with Feast of Good and Plenty. Tomorrow will be the 25th, and it will be Greasy Foods Day. The 26th after that, Mince Meat Day and also Pumpkin Day. Twin, October 27th. Potato Day and American Beer Day, October 28th, Chocolate Day, October 29th, Oatmeal Day, and October 30th, the day before Halloween, Candy Corn Day. And you'll be hearing from me on Halloween, which is nuts, but that's besides the point. Um, Let's start off with this. The first topic I do want to talk about is um, a tragic mishap that happened on a movie set. I believe everybody heard about it, but if you haven't, let me break it down to you. And this is coming from Insider, and the title reads, The prop gun fired by Alec Baldwin contained a live round, Prop Masters Union says. As the article reads, the prop gun actor Alec Baldwin discharged on the set of Rust on Thursday, killing director of photography Helena Hitchkins and injuring director Joel Sosa contained a live round, a union covering Prop Masters told his members. The email from the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, IATSE, Local 44, seen by IndieWire, called the incident an accidental weapons discharge. A live round was accidentally fired on set by the principal actor, hitting both the director of photography and director. The email said, Local 44 has confirmed that the props, set, decoration, special effects, and construction departments were staffed by New Mexico crew members. There were no local 44 members on the call sheet. Sheriff's deputies were dispatched to the film sets at Bonanza Creek Ranch near Santa Fe, New Mexico around 1.50 p.m. local time after receiving a call about a shooting. Hitchkin was 42 and she died after being transported to the University of New Mexico Hospital in critical condition. The film director... Uh, Joel Sosa, 48, left the hospital Friday morning after being injured in the incident. 
a cast member said in a tweet earlier that day. Deadline previously reported that Sosa was hit in the shoulder. According to the investigators, it appears that the scene being filmed involved the use of a prop firearm, which was discharged. The sheriff's office said in a statement provided to Insider, detectives are investigating how and what type of projectile was discharged. I'm not understanding this. When you are on a movie set, I understand you have to use some type of guns. We've seen uh, movies like people getting shot in the chest and people getting shot in the arm. We've seen people like destroy buildings and everything else and yada, yada, yada. I don't know how usually that stuff kind of stuff works. So I can't really go into detail with this. I only can go by a guy just watching on the outside looking in. This is a complete dummy thing to do. Whenever you are working on a movie, a movie isn't real, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, injuries do happen. Tom Cruise does his own effects. Tom Cruise does his own uh, scenes. And it's, he's been reported he gets injured on the Mission Impossible movie sets. You have actors that do their own scenes. You have actors that do choreography and they might break each other's nose and all this type of stuff. But how do we get to the point that, okay, prop guns are okay. Or props are okay if we have a live round. It's never supposed to be a live round inside a gun, a live round inside any of these things, at least in my opinion. Again, I am not a person that works in the movie industry yet, hopefully, but I will hope that we will get a far away from this, especially with the Bruce Lee and his son, Brandon Lee uh, effect. Bruce Lee and Brandon Lee both died on the movie sets of their own respective movies by Exactly this. A gun had a, some type of round or even a blank in it, and it killed both Bruce Lee and his son years later, Brandon Lee, on the Crow movie set. I would at least have thought Hollywood would at least took some, like, safety precautions because it's been a long time, at least in my head, that some type of person has gotten shot or killed or whatever the case may be by a blank or a live round inside a gun. I haven't heard of one in a long time. It always just bring back the Bruce Lee and his son. So for me to hear this, I'm like, okay, this is stupid. This is weird. What are we doing here? I don't know how we can fix this. Because a life got taken by a stupid, stupid thing. Again, movies aren't real. Movies are movies. They're fiction. They're entertainment. And for a live round to be put into a gun... Okay, it's question for everybody. And this is just me thinking out loud. With some somebody had to know on the movie said that the gun had a live round in it. Somebody. The person getting it, somebody putting the uh blanks inside the gun, somebody had to know it. Do we charge this person with anything? Do we charge them with um negligent murder or negligent homicide or whatever the case may be that they usually do under the law. Do we do that? Do we charge somebody with this crime? Because technically it is a crime because you bought the gun, you put the stuff inside the gun, and you should know because you have a profession, you have a job, you are the operator of this prop. You should know what you're going to do with this prop. You should know what the actor is going to do. So do we charge this person with this? That's just my personal, like, question. To me, I would think they might because, you know what? It should have already been checked out. It should have. But then again, who knows? When things happen on movie sets and people 
happen to die after they fall off a, uh, of a uh, tower or they fall off of a um, equipment building that was rigged in a certain way and they fall and they fall to their death. I don't know how this stuff will work. So it just brings to my attention of, I don't know what we do in this situation. I, I really don't. I feel sorry for the Hutchins family that they have lost a family member, that they lost a wife and they lost a mother. But I don't know what we do in this situation. I really don't. I hope that Hollywood will at least stop being stupid and now know what they need to do. Get rid of all these type of prop guns or if you're going to do it, have nothing inside of them. You have special effects. You can easily do something with these type of things. It's not that hard to do all these things. But again, we shall find out in later due time. I do feel sorry for that family for losing a loved one. And Alec Baldwin has to feel some type of way. Because by proxy, he did take somebody's life, technically. He didn't mean to take this person's life, but technically he took this person's life. So I wonder how Alec Baldwin is dealing with this personally. He's probably having some inner turmoil. He probably can't sleep right now and he's probably really like just bugged out because he's an actor he was on a movie he was doing the job and then he fired off a prop gun that he thought that everything's fine because how many movies have we seen with prop guns and this one bow he kills somebody by accident and not even really meaning to kill anybody so i wonder how alec baldwin feels i hope the baldwin family is really uh surrounding alec because i'm telling you right now Especially with Hollywood actors, this alley can go one or two. He's either one A, he's gonna spiral and start drinking to mass his pain, or either B, he's gonna have to go to therapy and it's gonna be a long road for him to fix himself up. So again, I feel sorry for the Hushkins family, and I feel sorry for the Bald Alec Baldwin himself. I really do. And uh that's the end of this topic. I just don't know what else to say about this. So let's go on to the next topic. And that next topic would be Brian Laundry. If you haven't figured, if you haven't heard from it this week, let me give you guys the rundown on this. Brian Laundry, the guy that was the last person to see Gabby Petito, uh, his remains have been found, and right beside him was a notebook. Uh, police reports have been saying skeletal human remains found inside the Creek Environmental Park of. Once a national park, I have no idea how to say this park, was confirmed to be those of Brian Laundry. The bones were found a day earlier near where a backpack and notebook belonging to Mr. Laundry were in the swamp. His parents, Chris and Roberta, acknowledged the death in a short and unemotional statement released through their lawyer asking for privacy. The lawyer wrote on behalf of the Laundries, we have no further comment at this time and we ask that you respect the Laundries' privacy at this time. The Petito and Smedit family attorney said they would not make any statements on the identification of Gabby Petito's former fiancé until they're emotionally ready. The FBI confirmed Mr. Laundry's remains through dental records, suggesting he had been found dead for a significant period of time before his remains were found. It was revealed earlier that the remains were found the remains found were bones and that it might take some time to make a positive identification. His belongings, which included a notebook where... However, described as salvageable and may yet pro uh, provide further clues, a comparison of dental records confirmed that the human remains found at the environmental park are those of Brian Laundrie's investigator said in a statement. All right, get, let me just cut to it. Brian Laundrie killed himself. Let's we'll just call it what it is a spade a spade here. How'd he do it? I have no idea. 
Brian Laundry killed himself because he couldn't deal with the hassle of facing Gary Petito's family, facing his own family, and even facing definite jail time for this. So he decided to go off and off himself. Now, how long did it take for vultures and everything else to eat him up? Because for him to be on the run for, what, almost a solid month? A month and a half, maybe? And they said that they found bones next to a backpack and a notebook. So how long was he dead? For there to be bones, I would think a vulture in any type of animal in a park probably takes care of the flesh and everything. If not in a day, probably like give it, what, a week or two? Probably a week because the flesh still got to deteriorate. You start seeing everything do what it's do. Just look at roadkill. When a deer gets killed and you see vultures picking at the meat and flesh and everything, and you ride by that every single day because I know I have, you still see the exact same pieces of the same deer. You see the fur. You see everything. But then you start seeing it daily by daily. You start seeing the red start turning into grayish, blackish undertones start showing, okay, it's starting to decay. So, how much of his flesh truly got eaten by animals, and how much of it truly decayed for there just to be bones next to a backpack and a notebook? That's all I care about, because we all know Brian Laundrie killed himself. We all know this, so we're not even going to uh, dignify that. I just want to know how long it took for that to even come to pass, and... I still feel sorry for his family because his family is going to have to deal with the ramifications of what he did. They're always going to have to deal with people calling his son, well, their son, a murderer, especially the Petito family. If they happen to be that vengeful towards the laundry family, you're going to say, your son killed my daughter and he didn't have the guts to come here to face what he'd done. See, that's what I'm saying. His actions now have brought along his mother and father along with this. So I don't know how we're going to, how they're going to even deal with this. I just wish the Laundry family and the Petito family some rest, knowing that both of their kids are not here. One family because, well, one child got taken by the other, and the other one, he took his own life. So I wish both families a lot of healing, and um, that's all I can say for this. If it was me on the other end, it would have been a problem. It would have been a problem if somebody would have did it to my daughter, or my sister, but this isn't me, and I'm just a guy on the outside looking in, and I still wish both of these families a lot of uh, healing, because trust me, this path that they're going to be going on, yeah, healing's going to be needing for both of these families. Um, Now to my next topic, it was all about a Minneapolis cop charged in a chase that killed an innocent driver, and this is coming from the Associated Press, as it reads, a Minneapolis police officer has been charged with manslaughter and vehicular homicide for a crash in July that killed an innocent motorist while the officer was pursuing a stolen vehicle, a prosecutor announced Friday. Officer Brian Cummings was driving nearly 80 miles per hour in Minneapolis when his siren and lights activated when his squad car slammed into another vehicle, killing 40-year-old Lanil Frazier, Hennepin County Attorney Mike Freeman said in a statement, the crash ended in a chase that lasted more than 20 blocks, including those residential neighbors, neighborhood, neighborhoods where the posted speed limit is 25 miles per hour. Police are supposed to protect and serve citizens and to act in a manner consistent with their sworn oath to do so. Officer Cummings' actions 
deviated from his oath and his negligence caused the death of Linnell Frazier, Freeman's son. During Cummings' chase, Frazier's Jeep entered an intersection on a green light, according to investigators. The driver of the stolen vehicle nearly missed Frazier's Jeep before the squad car struck it on the driver's side. An accident reconstruction report said the fatal collision can be attributed to the defendant for failure to operate his vehicle with due regard for the safety of other motorists. Mayor Jacob Fry said after Fraser's death that the city will review its pursuit policy and that review was still ongoing Friday. A police spokesperson said this summer that the policy was properly followed in the chase, but the complaint clearly suggested that prosecutors don't think it was quoting directly from the policy. Officers shall not initiate a pursuit or shall terminate a pursuit in progress if the pursuit poses an unreasonable risk to the officers, the public, or passengers of the vehicle being pursued who may be unwilling uh, participants. Cummings' attorney, Tom Plunkett, said Cummings was pursuing a suspect in a violent carjacking and that the occupants had been on a crime spree a practice that has been unfortunately become too common in Minneapolis. The city's police union didn't immediately respond to a message. Frazier was the uncle of Darnella Frazier, whose cell phone video of the Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck was viewed worldwide and helped launch a global protest movement against racial injustice. Wow. Okay, that's something I just learned right now. The Frazier family which had called for Cummings to be prosecuted in Frazier's death, welcomed the charges as a first step towards justice, according to their lawyers, Ben Crump and Jeff Storms. The Frazier family and our legal team are grateful for the charges brought against Brian Cummings for his reckless killing of Linnell Frazier, they said in a statement. We commend the Hennon Penn County Attorney's Office for having the courage to hold law enforcement accountable in this instance. No innocent civilian should ever lose their life because of unwarranted high-speed chases in residential neighborhoods. Both charges against Cunningham carry a presumptive police sentence, well, prison sentence for four years under state sentencing guidelines. All that for, you hold up, wait a minute. Both charges against Cumming carry a presumptive prison sentence of four years under state sentencing guidelines? Joe records show he was released on his own recognizance without bail required and has a hearing set for November 9th. All right, let's just cut to it. Let me just break down something that I just realized. So the guy that got killed was the uncle of the girl that recorded Derek Chauvin putting the knee on George Floyd. See, I don't want to say it like this, but this is somehow like the universe way of trying to still show us something. In a way, the girl recorded Derek Chauvin, a police officer killing a black man, and her uncle got killed by a police officer that was chasing down somebody that actually took something from someone and he was actually trying to do his job instead of accidentally, not even accidentally, but just killing somebody on purpose. This was a legit accidental killing. Now, I don't know if that's what, if you call that irony or not, or whatever the case, but that is a cruel, cruel, ironic situation that ever happened. By God, let me just say this right now. We have always heard Whenever you get carjacked, just give up your vehicle, right? Don't fight it because you can always replace materialistic things. You can't replace yourself. So if they ever carjack you, just give them up. Just give up your keys and give up your belongings. So do we do that in the same instance of a police chase 
And I would think in a police officer mind, they don't ever think that because they're the cops. Everybody's going to hear the sirens. Everybody's going to hear all this crap and garbage. And we were going to stop. I don't know if police officers have been around long enough to be seeing this, but recently, and even within the past couple of months, people ain't trying to like move out of the way, especially in big traffic for a police car. Shoot, I was just in traffic, what, a couple of days ago when I had to go to school, and there was an, uh, I believe it was an ambulance or a fire truck coming behind us, and I had to try to make my way over to the side, but there was a car in front of me that wasn't trying to hit at. He stayed in his lane for a minute until, like, the vehicle really was all pushing up on him, and you started hearing the real honking of the horn, and then the guy, like, reluctantly moved his car over to the side. So... I don't know what police officers are thinking whenever you have to really rush after somebody after they get carjacked. Listen, you can always replace materialistic things. You can't replace a life. So a police officer, they ain't going to think that. They're always going to run after somebody. What it comes down to in this instance right now, when you really think about it is, will the state be ready to say, you know what, we're going to allow carjackings to happen? Because in a way, we're kind of allowing that to happen if we don't allow police officers to pursue somebody. And then you... I'm trying to pick the right words here because this is a uh, a real, real soft topic here. It really is. Because we're talking about human possessions being taken and we're talking about a human life that just got taken because of a high-speed chase. We've seen high-speed chases on cops and all the all these police uh, shows and... We've seen cop cars smash into people. We've seen other vehicles that have been chased after somebody get smashed into other vehicles that were just doing their daily-to-day activity. So I really want to know, do we, what do we do? What do we do as civilians? What do we do as people that are watching these type of things happen? Do we condemn the officer for running after somebody or chasing after somebody in their vehicle because they were doing their job? Technically, they were. Or do we condemn them because they should have alerted somebody whenever they got to the point that I can't chase after them some more? Or do we just let it to go? See, I believe we give it a good college try first. We try it out first. If we can't get it right, then guess what? Ayo, we got to let it go. Certain people don't believe in that. Certain people say, we got to stick it out the whole way. I'm going to try to get this person and blah, blah, blah. For me, I don't know what to do in this predicament. I don't know what to say. I don't. I, don't. I am... First and foremost, I want to say uh, I want the Frazier family to please, please understand that I'm not trying to um, say anything bad about your family member who, uh, that lost their life in this instance. I'm not trying to say that's their fault. I'm not trying to say anything of that nature. I just want to make my opinions very, really uh, known that I think that we should give this person some grace. And I know it's crazy for me to say that. It's crazy, but we got to give an officer grace in this instant. We do. It wasn't a black and white, like, oh, yeah, I'm doing this to kill this person. I killed Frazier on purpose. No, this person wasn't killing this person on purpose. He sped down to try to catch somebody, and in this incident, it was just a legit accidental killing of somebody's family member. And I know if it was my family member I killed, I will want something to be happening. I want some type of justice, something. But when you're on the outside looking in, you can just look at all factors of it. And a police officer was technically doing a police officer's job. 
He was literally chasing after the bad guy. Now, there was some errors in this, and I stated already that he should have called somebody on the walkie-talkie or whatever they got and said, say, hey, yo, is anybody around Route blah, 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 or Street uh, 19 or Street Langington, whatever the case may be. He should have did that, but when you're in combat, when you're in uh, a situation, all that type of things leave your head. It all does. And you just think of tunnel vision. So I just don't know what to say about this. I just don't want it to be castrated at AO we're killing I'm killing another police officer. No dog. I can't I I just don't know what to say about this one. I just think that the officer was doing his job and he had pad uh this was a bad judge of choice that he made. He should have just called for somebody for backup to uh, go after that vehicle because he couldn't do it. The car vehicle was too fast for him. So, uh, but we still got to get the officer grace, at least in my opinion. I, I think that we do, but I could be eternally wrong. I want somebody, whenever you hear this, to please just inform me of what you think. Do you think we should give this officer grace? Does he f- should be facing some type of uh, crime, some type of charges to this because he killed a guy by accident? Because he was chasing after somebody, or do we? What do we do? I don't know. I'm just throwing it up to you guys. I don't. I don't know what to say about that. And um, yeah, I want to get on to the next topic here. Uh, it's now talking about uh jury selection for the Ahmad Arbery trial has now uh started, and this comes from USA Today. As it reads, would be jurors in the murder trial of the three men charged with killing the 25 year old Ahmad Arbery expressed concerns this week about remaining anonymous should they be selected to serve, particularly given the size of the community and intense public interest in the high-profile trial. A thousand of the 62,000 registered voters in Glen County received jury summons. The judge hopes to narrow the jury pool down to a smaller group of 64 and eventually the 16 people, 12 jurors, and four alternates. Complicating that process is the fact that multiple prospective jurors have told the court they know Omar Berry, the defendants, the potential witnesses, other prospective jurors, and some of the local figures involved in the case. Some worry they would be identified as a juror in the press and fear they would face personal repercussions after rendering a verdict. I don't want to have to relocate because of something that goes wrong, one prospective juror said Monday. Under questioning by lawyers for the defendants, another prospective juror expressed similar concerns. Any verdict, guilty or innocent, is going to be unpopular with some people, she said. Maybe I'll feel even unsafe. I don't know. One juror told the court she was concerned about making sure uh, my name is out of the news. It's a small enough town. Another prospective juror told lawyers for the defendants Thursday. I think it would be naive to think there couldn't be real-world repercussions. Judge Timothy Wilsley Wilmsley has barred the media from releasing identi- identifying information about jurors and repeatedly assured jurors the court is working to maintain their anonymity. Anonymous jurors are rare, but due to social media, the ease of internet searches and concerns over juror safety, the practice could become more common. A shift more legal scholars says could jeopardize transparency and the need for more diverse jurors. Let me just say this 
I feel for the jurors. I do. I feel for them because you know what? Information gets leaked out every day left and right. And especially with a big case like this, and you live in such a small town, somebody's going to bound to know who's on that juror pool. It doesn't matter. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. It can be, yo, this person hasn't been on inside our job for the past, what, two or three days? Then they're automatically going to think, hold up, did they get picked for the jury? See, that's the type of thing. When you're in a small town, small town people talk. I'm living in a small town. And everybody talks to one another except for my family because, again, I want to state this. We stay to our business inside our home. But when you come from a small town, you happen to know everybody in that county or in that town. You know that everybody, kids go to that exact same school. You know whose parents they are. You know who's in with the teachers. You know who's in with the principal. You know who's in with the librarian. You get where I'm going out here. You know who's got the ends with everybody. And you know whose family got a problem. You know whose uh, relatives is on drugs. You know whose relatives had a baby and blah, blah, blah. When you're inside a small town and the small town talks. So with a small town like that, it's going to be easy to pop out. Hey, yo, Tom isn't here. How long has Tom been here? Tom hasn't been here for the last five days. Okay, he got picked for the jury. Or, hey, Sabrina hasn't been on work. What do you mean? I've just been noticing Sabrina hasn't been on work lately. How many days has it been? Uh, three. Hold up, what's going on right now? Uh, the the juror. She's a juror. See, those type of things, it doesn't take long to figure out. So I feel for the jurors in this Amar Arbery case that will be picked. My thing for this is I would... Try to take this court case out of the state if you want it to get a fair trial. Legit, all the way down by the books, a fair trial, because you know what? Jurors are going to be picked from different states. If you're in a different state, you get fresh eyes that don't know Ahmaud Arbery personally. You don't know the three people personally. Yes, everybody's going to know at least something about the case. Every person that you're at least covered for a juror in another state is going to know something about this case because that's going to be the, all the big hubbub for whenever that case gets moved over to that state. So let's just mark that out of there. Jurors are at least going to know something, but they're not going to have that personal uh, connection like people inside that small county would be if that trial stays in that small county. So let me just state that again. Move the case out of that county into another state so you will get a fair and even trial and let me just state this right now. These men should be found guilty because, again, if you don't remember Ahmaud Arbery's situation, Ahmaud Arbery was a black guy that was running into a house that was, I believe, being developed at the time, and he was just looking around the house. He wasn't stealing nothing. He was just entering the house. And you got two guys that were in their truck, apparently, that lived around in the neighborhood, saw him, and they start cornering him and try to figure out what is he doing in there. Is he stealing or whatever? Just because we're black, they always think they would like to steal something, even though they steal a lot of things. They stole America away from the legit Americans, the Indians. But I digress. They thought that Amar Arbery was stealing out of this developmental home, but he wasn't. He was doing absolutely nothing. He was just taking a run around the neighborhood, and he just happened to look inside a developmental house. That was no harm, no foul in this. But in the end... These two guys happened to kill this black man, and then the third guy that's getting prosecuted was the guy that just happened to videotape and be around these guys. So he's part of it, whether he likes it or not. You part of it, dog. So 
that's the rundown on the Armand Arbery case. Get this court case out of that state and get into a different state. That's all I can give you. That's all the type of advice I could give this court case. And with that, I hope that Armand Arbery's family is getting some type of, again, I hope they have uh, start the healing process. I hope they have been healing since their loved one has passed from this brutal killing that shouldn't have never happened. And uh, with that, I want to get on to my next topic. And that topic is, <laughs> I want to talk about the Dr. Dre uh, being served documents. And if you don't know, let me read it to you. And this is coming from uh, Atlanta Blackstar. And it reads, that's another level of evil. Dr. Dre's alleged, allegedly served documents regarding his divorce from a strange wife, Nicole Young, during funeral for grandmother. Fans left speechless. As it reads, Dr. Dre's divorce proceedings just took what many are calling the sickest turn yet. According to the gossip and entertainment news website TMZ, an unidentified source claims the Beats Entertainment founder, whose real name is Andre Young, was served legal documents regarding his divorce from his estranged wife, more specifically records pertaining to Young's attorney fees. The incident allegedly took place on Monday, October 18th, while the 56-year-old was laying his grandmother to rest. Sources say the server, who was sent on behalf of Young, walked up to Dre, who was reportedly standing right next to his loved one's casket and attempted to hand him the documents. The MC was so enraged that witnesses say he refused to take the paper due to the nature in which they were presented. However, representatives for Young, a former lawyer, denied these reports telling the outlet that the hip-hop mogul was served in the parking lot after the burial. Still, many critics on social media found the action to be insensitive, including one Twitter user who described that incident as the sickest S ever, only seen on movies type S. Uh, another person condemned the reported incident, stating, no matter what Dr. Dre did, and I know he did uh, some grimy stuff in his life, I'm not ignoring that, the one thing he did not deserve is to be served divorce papers at a loved one's funeral. The person added, that's another level of evil I can't comprehend. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, I want to just give you guys a cake. I just want to give you guys a lesson in human decency. As a man that is vengeful and spiteful himself, and I am known as being a self-proclaimed dickhead to my family members, and I'm not a dickhead to my family members, but if you ask me, can I be a dickhead? Oh, yes, they can tell you. Yeah, Drew will be a dickhead. They can ask. They can tell you. But I am still a lovable and caring dickhead. Let's get that correct. But getting along here. Dr. Dre, we all know he has done some grimy things with the Michelet incident. If you don't know Michelet, I want you to Google that because that is still a situation. And I'm not trying to get sued from this. So you can Google that yourself. I'm not going to even try to give you that. If you Google Michelet. Miss Chalet. Dr. Dre has done some pretty grimy things. But when you have lost a loved one, and it's been documented that Dr. Dre's grandmother was the one that helped raise him uh, as a person, and he has to lay his grandmother to rest, the person that helped raise him, and he gets served, technically, his the wife's lawyer's fees at his grandmother's Funeral. I don't care if it's before the funeral or as soon as he's about to walk in during the funeral or as soon as he's leaving the funeral. That is despicable. You couldn't have picked another day. Shoot, as a matter of fact, 
You couldn't have picked and waited literally until what? The Super Bowl, because you know where he's going to be at at the Super Bowl. You know he's going to be there. You could have picked that day. And people might say, Joe, that's worse. No, it's not. You picked the Super Bowl because you know that's exactly where he's got to be and you got to show up. For him to get collect that money, he has to show up and perform and show out. So guess what? You pick that day. You tell your lawyers, hey, yo, we're going to get him that day. Don't worry about it. He's going to get paid and da-da-da-da-da. At least that's what your lawyer should have told you. We're going to get him on that day. And they pay attention, especially when you being lawyers to a high-profile case as a divorce for Dr. Dre. Yeah, and the NFL, which people love to watch in America, that's one of America's greatest pastime sports. And you know that he's going to be doing a halftime uh, show in the next literal couple of months. Yeah, you guys could have waited a couple months for that. The lawyers definitely would have waited for that. Because they would just would have just brought their name to high notoriety that Dr. Dre got served legal papers for his wife's divorce uh, attorneys at the Super Bowl. That would have made national headline news way much more swallowable than it would have been at a funeral. That's just my uh, two cents on that situation. Dr. Dre shouldn't have been served that day. He should have got him the next day or whatever the case may be. But on a day like putting somebody to rest, and this is coming from, again, another guy that's so vindictive and uh, bent on vengeance whenever I can get it, I wouldn't have done this. I wouldn't have at all. But to each his own, I'm just pondering that to you guys. I just wanted to throw that topic out to you guys because I found that one really interesting to me. And I want to leave this question to you guys again. I'm leaving you guys with a whole lot of questions today. Would you guys have done this? If you're getting a divorce from your spouse or for you guys that are listening to this and gals that are listening to this are in relationships and you guys break up and you happen to have uh, your partners or former partners stuff at your crib or whatever the case may be, would you drop off your stuff, their stuff at their person's funeral or whatever the case may be? Or what? Would you even deliver any type of thing, message to somebody at a funeral? That's just me. So if you're married, would you have somebody send over divorce papers to your ex-spouse's uh, person's funeral? If you're in a relationship, well, and you're dumping this person or you have dumped this person, would you put your person's, uh, your former person's belongings in a bag and drop it off at a funeral? Just give me some type of answer to this. Because you know what? It's a real interesting thing when you think about it. It just leaves you to ponder on certain things. The human mind and what people are willing and willing and not willing to do. So, again, that's just another thing that uh, just I just want to bring that up to speed. And the last topic before I get you guys out of here, and this is from CNN, and it reads, A 10-year-old girl arrested at school over a drawing was the only student disciplined because she is black, mom and attorney said. As the article reads, earlier this week, the American Civil Liberties Union of Hawaii sent a letter to the Honolulu Police Department, the State Department of Education, and the State Attorney General's Office demanding policy changes and compensation over an incident that happened at the Hunawai Elementary School in Honolulu. The girl was handcuffed with excessive force and taken to the police station after a parent called school officials to complain about a drawing made by the girl and, uh, and demanding to get police involved, the ACLU said. The girl's mother, Tamara Taylor told CNN's Brianna Killer 
on Friday that she dropped her daughter at school and received a call later that day about a child about a children's dispute and the possibility of police being called. When she arrived, Taylor says officers were already at the school. We were led into a room, I'm assuming, to discuss the situation. However, what happened previously to lead up to where we were at that moment was never explained to me. I rarely didn't know what was going on at that point in time, Taylor said. She wasn't allowed to leave that room and only saw her daughter at a distance when a police car drove off as Taylor was escorted outside, the mother said. Taylor says she doesn't believe the drawing was the sole motivation for her daughter's arrest and a race played a role. I was stripped of my rights as a parent and my daughter was stripped of her rights to protection and representation as a minor. There was no understanding of diversity, African-American culture, and the history of police involvement with African-American youth. My daughter and I are traumatized from these events and I and I'm disheartened to know that this day will forever live with my daughter. Taylor said in a statement earlier this week, the ACLU is giving the school and the police until November 8th to respond to their demands. The Honolulu Police Department told CNN on Tuesday it was reviewing the letter and will be working with Corporation Council to address these allegations. A spokesperson for the Hawaii DOE said the agency did not have a comment at this time. CNN did reach out to the school, but has not heard anything back. Ladies and gentlemen, I tried to find the drawing because I was trying to figure out, okay, for them to arrest this 10-year-old girl, what was the drawing? Was the drawing something sexual? Was it something solicited? Was it anything? I can find nothing about the drawing anywhere. So they're just telling me that, yo, this was nothing but a complete, uh, a complete hoax. Not even a hoax, but just like something that the school wanted to do. Because let me tell you something. If it was really devastating and damning as we've all seen things happen, they would have published whatever type of photo. There would have been some type of photo on Google. There would have been some type of video or something of the magnitude to show the world, okay, this is what this 10-year-old girl drew, drew out, and this is why we did what we had to do in Blase Block. But there is no such thing. So I am understanding exactly why her mother is wanting uh, the school to be held responsible for this first and foremost a little girl shouldn't be even arrested for a drawing a drawing my guy again it's a drawing how how do we do this it's a drawing now if she actually were to kill somebody then we would have a case but she didn't kill nobody she was only a drawing of something what what grounds do we have to arrest somebody over a drawing there is nothing i've seen people with swastikas on a wall and swastikas on a paper. I haven't seen them get arrested. I saw them get reprimanded. Yes, but arrested? No. So for you to arrest a 10 year old girl, black girl in Hawaii, it's stupid. Matter of fact, a 10 year old girl anywhere, no matter what race you, you are, just a 10 year old to be arrested over a drawing, that is silly. Reprimand them. Tell them what the parent, what they drew out, and whatever the case may be. Then you actually might have a, then, then okay, cool. Let me give you guys a story of mine. You guys should know, if you don't know, I'm a professional wrestling uh, fan. And at a time, uh, earlier when I was in middle school, uh, there was a wrestling company, Impact Wrestling, and under their banner, they used to be called TNA Wrestling. And in TNA, there was a group called Triple X. And in the members of the group were called Elix Skipper, uh, Loki, and Christopher Daniels. Now, I put... Triple X on. I'm in computer club, computer class. I write up something and I put Triple X on there and I'm about to list the members of Triple X on it. 
And my teacher rolls around and she stops me and she looks at me straight up and she's like, I can send you to the principal for this. And I'm looking straight up dumbfounded. I'm like, for what? She's like, don't you, you, you know, and I'm like, no, no, I don't. And she's like, you don't know. And I'm like, no, no, I don't. And she just looks at me because everybody knows that I don't know something. If I don't know something, I don't know something. And my family has a reputation of, hey, yo, don't mess with us like that because we are wholesome, respectable people. We don't, we mind our business. So the computer class lady ends up telling me, erase that. And I erased triple X and I just, and then she walked away. And then I asked the people around me and I asked, okay, what, what was she bugging about? And they said, Gerald, you don't know what Triple X is? I said, no. And then they told me what Triple X was. I was like, oh, okay. That was stupid for her to get hostile and stupid about it, but all right, cool. See, something like that. Reprimand if you reprimanded that way or something. But to call the police officers over a drawing, again, is so stupid. And by the way, I didn't give you guys what the uh, ACLU, their demands were to the uh, police department and the uh, Department of Education. What they're asking for is for the police department and everybody else to adopt uh, policy changes. They want to expunge all records of the arrest and to pay $500,000 in damages for harm and suffering caused by these agencies toward the daughter and the mother. Now, do I think any of that's going to happen? I have no idea. I will be interested in this situation. I will try to keep uh, best of... Uh, knowledge and updating on this whenever I do find out because they got until November 8th and we're not that far from it because this is the last week of October. So it's fastly approaching and I will be at least gandering my eye over on this to see if the school says something, pays out or whatever the case may be because again, arresting somebody over a drawing instead of reprimanding them is the dumbest thing I have ever heard in my life and I just can't understand and fathom it. But, hey, that was it for that. And with that, uh, let me get you to the AEW Dynamite results. Because, again, they were not uh, airing on Wednesday night. They aired last night on Saturday. And without further ado, here's the AEW Dynamite results. Dynamite opens up with a World Championship Elimination Tournament. Uh, some quarterfinals from Brian Danielson going against Dustin Rhodes. Brian Danielson advances to the semifinals, and he does this whenever he was able to lock in the guillotine choke on Dustin Rhodes and has him pass out. Uh, this was a great match. This was way better than it was even supposed to be because, again, Dustin Rhodes is way past his prime, and Brian Danielson is literally at his prime peak, and it was just different. I mean, this was arguably match of the night, literally. Um... And it was still just shocking to me, but I would suggest you go and check this match out. If any match out of this whole uh, night, literally the beginning match was literally the match of the night, Brian Danielson going against uh, Dustin Rhodes. After this, we get a super elite uh, backstage promo, and it has Kenny Omega, Adam Cole, and the Young Bucks. Kenny Omega talks about uh, Hangman's boys, the Dark Order, having a match with the Elite next week on AEW Dynamite, which is they're going to be their Halloween edition. And Kenny starts breaking down Hangman Page, saying that he knows Hangman personally. Behind all the cowboy crap, the whole behind the whole uh, tight pants and the whole cowboy 
aesthetic that he wears, he knows Cowboy personally. And he knows that Cowboy fears um, failure. He knows that Hangman Adam Page feels failure. And he knows that if the fans knew who the real you were, they wouldn't chant Cowboy crap. They'll chant Coward crap. And then you get the whole Young Bucks and Adam Cole just laughing at that whole little quick wit uh, joke right there. After this, you get a FTR and Penta and Alex Abrahantes video playing. And the main point of this is this. FTR wants to hold the AEW Tag Team Championships. Yes, they won the AAA Tag Team Championships from Penta and Phoenix last week on Rampage. But they want to be able to... No, they actually won it on Dynamite. But they want to be able to hold the AEW Tag Team Championships because their home base is AEW. And also, whenever you hold the AEW Tag Team Championships they get more money. So they want to provide for their families more, and they also want to be known as the greatest tag team wrestlers of all time. Penta and Alex uh, are making the claim that, hey, if they want to play dirty, we can play dirty, and guess what? It looks like they're about to play dirty. So I thought we were going to get Penta and Phoenix going against Santana and Ortiz, but they switched it up last week, and they give us FTR. I'm not mad at this match. I think it'll be awesome whenever we get it at full gear. But, um, again, I'm not mad at it. I just want to see what we uh get out of all this. After this, we get Tony Schiavone in the ring, and he calls out Sting, and he asks about Darby Allen's uh, medical condition because we haven't seen Darby Allen since he got took out two weeks ago. And before Sting could even answer Tony Schiavone's question, out comes MJF. MJF says that he is here to have a gentleman's chat with Sting and not trying to start anything with him. MGF says that Darby isn't coming back to AEW because he knows that he's afraid of MJF. And whatever Sting's going to say, MGF isn't fooled by Sting. Because Sting is always around for... Sting has a wit about having friends about him. Anybody that is friends with Sting always happens to be injured. And whenever it's time for Sting to be on the receiving end of something, Sting's never there. Take, for example, this. MJF brought this up. Lex Luger. Anytime Sting was in trouble, Lex Luger will always help Sting out. But whenever Sting was time to repay the favor when Lex was getting his butt beat, Sting was never there. And MJF mentions Lex Luger up to Sting, and he walks into the ring, and Sting decks MJF right in the face. So now you get Sting going against MJF at this moment. And Sting's beating up on MJF until Sean Spears and Warlow comes out. And then I was three on one, and you know exactly what's about to happen next. All three of the men beat down on Sting. Then Liam laid out. And then MJF has to get himself adjusted back because he wants to look gentlemanly. He has a chair, and he sits down. And Warlow brings Sting's body over to MJF. And MJF grabs the mic, and he tells Right into the camera, and he's talking to Darby Allen. He says, Darby Allen, how about now? Have I mentally broke you now? You are not better than me. I am better than you, and you are going to learn that one way or another. I mean, this man just starts getting ballistic, nutso, while he's sitting here in the chair just yelling into the, into the camera. This is telling you that MGF isn't able to get under Darby Allen as he was able to get under Cody. He was able to get under Chris Jericho, and he was able to get all under all his other past rivals' skin. Somehow he's obsessed with getting under Darby Allen's skin, and right now he's hoping that 
attacking Sting has done this. And if not, he's going to find one way or another to do it. And then you get Sean Spears and Warlow leaving the ring. And MJF is about to leave the ring. And he sees Sting getting up. Warlow and Sean's about to get into the ring. But MJF has to call his dogs down. And he tells him, I got this. And once Sting gets up on his feet fully, MJF decks Sting right in the face. But the fist that MJF does it with is the fist that he has the AEW Dynamite ring. So the ring clicks Sting right in the face. And that's the signature pattern for MJF. And that's the end of this segment. Now we go to a backstage uh, promo with uh, Britt Baker. And it's been confirmed that at full gear, it will be her defending her AEW Women's Championship against Ty Conti. Uh, Britt is all about beating Ty Conti. She talks about if Britt, Britt talks about if Ty would have went up the rankings as she's supposed to, it would have been a good match at full gear. Now she just dared to brutalize Ty Conti for stepping into her business. So that's the end of that. Now it's time for a TBS uh, championship tournament match between Penelope Ford going against Ruby Soho. During the middle of this match, however, the bunny comes out to try to help out Penelope Ford and just be there for uh, friendship for Ford. But that all backfires in the end because Ruby Soho wins the match and she gets to advance to face Chris Statlander somewhere down the line. And the way she does this is whenever Penelope Ford hits Ruby with a gut buster, she pins her and she doesn't get the win off of this because Ruby kicks out at two and a half. You see Penelope get the brass knuckles from the bunny, but the referee sees this and he kicks the brass knuckles out of the ring. And this allows Ruby to go behind Penelope Ford and hits her with a roll up and pins her that way. After the match, Penelope Ford gets into the ring and the bunny is now in the ring as well. And they're about to attack Ruby Soho. and She's ready for it. But Red Velvet comes out and she stands side by side with Ruby. So now it's two on two, but Penelope and the bunny both get out of the ring. So, that ends this segment, but it also sets up for Red Velvet going against the Bunny also in the TNT Championship Tournament. Now we get a backstage segment with MGF, Warlow, and Sean Spears. And Warlow asks MGF, what was that crap about last week? MGF asks, what do you mean? And Warlow has to tell him, when you shove me into Sting. MGF admits to Warlow, oh yeah. Oh man, that was a fight or flight situation, man. I was just trying to, I was stuck in that situation. You were there, and I'm sorry about that. And he tells him, listen, you get paid the big bucks by me because you've done such an amazing job. I appreciate you for everything you have done. And you know what? You know what I realized? I put too much responsibility on you. And that's not your fault. That's my fault. So you know what? I've gotten you an accountability buddy. And his name is Sean Spears. And Spears looks surprised to hear that himself. But hey, MJF is the leader of the pinnacle. And you both are in the pinnacle. So you both will be doing exactly what MJF says. He taps them both on the shoulder and tells him he got a meeting to go attend to. And he tells him, good luck, boys. After this, we get a match between Bobby Fish going against Anthony Green. Quick and simple match. Bobby Fish wins the match by pinfall. Bobby does this whenever he hits a roundhouse kick to the head of Green and pins him. After the match, Bobby Fish goes and attack Anthony Green. And he continues to beat him up until CM Punk runs down the entrance ramp and slides into the ring and scares off. Bobby Fish, and then you see Bobby Fish and CM Punk just mouthing and off to one another. So this is setting up a match for on the next episode of Dynamite where CM Punk will go against Bobby Fish. That should be a great match because both of these two are great in-ring uh, 
wrestlers. After this, we get Tony Schiavone in the backstage interviewing both Leo Rush and Dante Martin. Leo Rush says that he sees something in Dante Martin. Even though he lost to Malachi Black, Dante still shows something to Leo, and Leo is just here to mentor uh, Dante, and he's not going to be able to do that to Matt Seidel because Matt Seidel lost to CM Punk on Rampage, and Leo Rush set up that match. Leo Rush mentions that he knows Dante could beat up Matt Seidel, and he knows that I he could beat up Matt Seidel. So he went to Tony Khan earlier, and he set up a match for the next episode of Rampage. It will be the Seidel brothers going against Dante Martin and Leo Rush. After this, we get a in-ring competition. Now it's time for the next match of the AEW World Championship Eliminators uh, Tournament quarterfinals. It is Lance Archer going against Eddie Kingston. Eddie Kingston wins the match, and he now gets to advance and faces Brian Danielson on next episode of AEW Dynamite. This happens when Lance Archer goes to the top rope, and he's looking to hit a moonsault on Eddie Kingston, but he doesn't hit Kingston. He misses, and whenever he lands, his head hits the mat. So it looks like he kind of got a concussion or he got a, a neck problem at the moment. He rolls out of the ring, and now they have AEW doctors down there to check up on Archer to see if he's still okay. Is he right in function? Archer is able to get into the ring, but he's on his knees and he's on his forearm. So Eddie Kingston sees this. He knows what he got to do. He got to quickly roll over to Archer and roll him up for a schoolboy. That's how he advances. This is one of the dangerous parts about professional wrestling. Accidents do happen. And when you land a body part that you're not supposed to land on the mat, and the mat is hard. It's not soft. Once you do that, you are putting your body in risk. You're risking uh, being almost being paralyzed. So, I hope Archer does understand that, yo, you're a big guy. You ain't supposed to be flying off the top ropes like this. I know you're wanting to be different. You want to showcase yourself. But, my guy, we got to save those for big moments. And next time, we got to put somebody, like, through a table off that. Not just you hitting the mat. No, 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 no. A table, because at least if you would hit the table first, your bottom midsection would hit it. You at least would have broken the fall before your head hit that mat. I just throwing that out there. If anybody ever listens to that, just look at whenever people do a move and they slam through a table before they hit the mat. The table kinds of hits the reinforcement before they hit the mat, just kind of like soften the blow up. I know that sounds crazy, but once you see it, you'll understand what I'm talking about. After this, now it's time for an in-ring promo from Dan Lambert in the minute of the year. The main, the main point of this is that the minute of the year out here, the trash talk, inner circle, until Sammy Guevara comes out on the ramp to shut them up. Dan Lambert tells Sammy Guevara that he has a proposition for him. He tells him that at full gear, it will be a 10-man tag team match with the inner circle going against the American top team. The only way this match will happen is if Sammy Guevara will put up his TNT championship against Ethan Page on the next episode of Dynamite. Also, if Sammy Guevara loses the match, not only does he lose the TNT championship, he will be out of the inner circle forever. Sammy accepts the challenge, but he says this. When he beats Ethan Page, he gets to pick any member of American Top Team that the inner circle will face at full gear. So Sammy agrees to this, Dan agrees to this, and Scorpio Sky then gets on the mic and tells Sammy, since he's in an accepting mood, why don't he accept this book kicking that he's about to receive right now from Page and Sky? So Page and Sky both get out of the ring, they walk up to Sammy, and I ain't gonna front. It looked like for a minute, uh, Ortiz, and it looked like certain uh, somebody was supposed to come through the 
interest ramp before hits were thrown, but too little too late. Uh, Scorpio Sky punch uh, Guevara first, and then you get Guevara punch a Sky back, and now you get 2-1 beat down, but it wasn't really beat down because as soon as the two start trying to beat up on Guevara, you get Ortiz, Santana, and Jake Hager coming down out of the ramp to chase off the men of the year, and that's how you end that segment. Now we go to a backstage promo from John Moxley. Moxley talks about not caring about being in the World Championship Tournament or the World Title. The only thing he cares about right now is his daughter's eyes. Because he talks about whenever he locks into his daughter's eyes and he sees her. And then he pulls out the whole father pinky thing and then seeing his daughter grab onto his finger with her whole hand. It does something to him. It makes him different. He talks about wanting to just make it home with all his teeth in his head in his mouth, and his head on his shoulder. And the only way he can do that is by making sure he knocks out all these people in this tournament. So he has to win this entire tournament so that can happen. After this, we get a uh, Dark Order backstage promo. And during this promo, Adam Page walks up to the Dark Order, and he wants to thank them for doing what they thought was best for him whenever he was out this entire time. And he also wants to apologize to them for not being there for them when they were they were having their... Uh, inner problems inside the Dark Order. The Dark Order says, hey man, that's okay. We all go through our situations. And that's the end of this segment. Now it's time for Brandon Cutler to go against Jungle Boy. Another quick and simple match. Jungle Boy beats up on Brandon Cutler and Jungle Boy wins the match by submission whenever he locks in the snare trap on Brandon Cutler and makes him tap out. After the match, Jungle Boy gets on the microphone and says that was a good warm-up and said he wants to face a member of the elite right now, and he calls any of them out. And nobody comes out at this moment, so Jungle Boy says, okay, so that's what we're doing? All right. He goes to Brandon, and he locks in the snare trap again, and then he puts the microphone up to Brandon Color, and as Brandon is trying to get his way out of the snare trap, Brandon starts yelling for either Matt or Nick to come out to try to save him, Adam Cole's voice hits on the mic, and you hear Adam come out, and he tells Jungle Boy, you feel so tough picking on Brandon Cutler. How about you try that mess with me? So Adam Cole starts taking off his jacket and starts walking towards the ring. He gets on the ring apron, but Jungle Boy hits him with a forearm to the face, so Adam Cole drops off the ring apron, and Jungle Boy's in the ring just waving his hands for Adam Cole to try to get into the ring. Unbeknownst to Jungle Boy, however, once he turns around, he gets hit with a double super kicks by the Young Bucks. And then Adam Cole grabs Jungle Boy's leg, drags him out of the ring, and hits him with a forearm. And now they are dragging and beating up Jungle Boy's body until they get to the entrance stage. Once they do, the Young Bucks hit a BTE trigger on Jungle Boy. And Adam Cole hits a um, last shot, or better known as the boom which is a knee strike to the back of Jungle Boy's head. They're about to leave the stage until Adam Cole goes up to the Bucks and starts whispering something to both of their ears. And they like this idea. And then you see the Young Bucks grab Jungle Boy and they put him over into a position. And then they pick him up and then they chuck him right off the stage and he falls right through two tables on the floor. So this is definitely setting up for a Jungle Boy to go against uh, Adam Page, not Adam Page, but Adam Cole at full gear, or in the grand scheme of things, we'll probably get another uh, triple threat match, not triple threat, but a six-man 
match at Full Gear with Jurassic Express going against the Super Click. But all will tell, all we'll find out in the following weeks to come. Now it's time for the main event of AEW Dynamite, the trilogy match between Cody Rhodes and Malachi Black. Cody wins the third match by pinfall. But during the match, you have Malachi get busted open, so he's bleeding. Cody, Cody gets busted open, he's bleeding. Cody was able to put Malachi Black through a table by hitting the crossroads off the ring apron onto the table on the outside floor. You had Andrade coming out to the ring, and he's trying to repay the favor for the other night at Rampage because Malachi Black came out after his match and helped uh, Andrade beat up on Pac. And this time, Andrade comes out to repay the favor. He does this, but Pac comes out and he starts beating up on Andrade. So now you get Pac fighting Andrade up the ramp to the back. And in the end, Cody was able to hit a crossroads and then float over and hit a Tiger Driver 98 on Malachi Black to win the match. So now it's 2-1, and one, and we'll probably get another match between these two, and probably like a hardcore match at full gear, maybe. I'm saying full gear because I don't think they're just going to be through with these two. But who will know in that was your AEW Dynamite results. Now, with that being said, let me get you guys my social media links so I can get you guys out of here. On Twitter, you can find me at at My2Podcast. Instagram, My2SensePodcastG2. And Yahoo. My personal email is My2SensePodcast at Yahoo.com. And for all these social media links, it's not T-W-O or T-O-O. You actually put the actual number two in these social media links. Also, for Wisdom, you can find me at Gerald Garrett on that platform and Wisdom is available on Apple products and I'm not so sure about uh, Android or Samsung products and with that always remember I love you And with that, I want to thank you all for listening to me. I know this one was a short episode because, again, not a lot of things happened this week, at least that pertain to my knowledge of entertainment-wise or even knowledge-wise. These items were just things that I personally found interesting to me, and I thought that the world should hear about it. But again, uh, this isn't goodbye. This is until you hear from the sweet-sounding voice again. And again, you will hear me either on my Saturday episode of Wrestling Highlights of the Week or my Sunday episodes like you are now. And you can find all these past episodes and future episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbeam, Amazon Music, and Audible. And with that, this has been My Two Cents Podcast presented by G2. He is I, I am him. I want you to have a blessed Sunday and let's get started with the rest of this week. I want you to have a great, amazing week. I love you all and always remember to just keep forward and uh, keep pushing forward. And with that, Kanye, please take these people home. I'm tired, you tired, uh-huh. Jesus wept. Uh-huh.